Today we dive deep into what it means to be a Midwesterner, what it means to be rural. From South Dakota Public Broadcasting, it's Wednesday, October 18th, and this is In the Moment. Coming up this hour, Middle West Review and Emerson College Polling have released the largest ever study on Midwestern identity. Editor and author John Lauk is with us for a conversation about what the poll reveals. Then the Dakota political junkies talk the politics of identity, including a glance at a piece in the New Yorker magazine that article seeks to dismantle a so-called myth of rural America. And we'll also look at South Dakota's efforts to find a new spot for a prison. Then we'll wrap the hour with Richard Tubles and a preview of the new SDPB documentary series, Tatanka, A Way of Life. We're broadcasting live today from SDPB's Kirby Family Studio in Sioux Falls. I'm Lori Walsh. You're in the moment. News is first. The transition away from fossil fuels is already underway, and the Biden administration has made major investments in hydrogen power. Some of that money, nearly $1 billion, has made its way to our region to establish a, quote, hydrogen power hub. Well, what does that mean for South Dakota? SDPB's C.J. Keene spoke with XL Energy Vice President of Clean Fuels, Greg Chamberlain. There are often so many fast developments in the world of clean energy. Can you start just by giving us the big picture overview of what exactly is happening here? Sure. The big picture overview, DOE is really, uh, these these awards are really set up to spark a transformation uh, in our energy economy to really make hydrogen possible in various regions around, uh, around the country. Uh, hydrogen holds great promise as a carbon-free energy resource, and we want to see that happen here in the upper Midwest. And so uh, that's what this is about. Funding will stretch uh, about a 10-year period. Uh, There'll be a period of uh, detailed planning, uh, followed by a permitting phase, followed by construction, which we would expect to be commencing probably in the latter part of this decade. And what exactly would a hydrogen hub be? Sure. Uh, A hydrogen hub is within a region where you have producers and off-takers of hydrogen that are using it as decarbonization pathways in our economy. So we'll be producing hydrogen, XL Energy, and we can uh, decarbonize our power production and gas systems. Uh, with that. We can use it for carbon-free electric generation. Uh, We can also off-take it or sell it uh, to other industries who might make products like sustainable aviation fuel uh, or green ammonia fertilizer that's carbon-free. What does this kind of investment represent for our region? Sure. Well, first of all, it means jobs. And uh, we believe this project over decades Uh, there'll be thousands of jobs, not only construction jobs, but long-term good paying operating jobs uh, as well. Also, uh, it's going to provide carbon-free energy for the upper Midwest and carbon-free pathways that are going to attract other industries and provide economic development for the region. And then what would it mean for South Dakota more specifically? We view our uh, carbon-free electric generating assets as all good candidates for the production of 
green hydrogen. And so we're currently awaiting treasury rules on what the production tax credit rules are going to be. And that's really gonna help us pinpoint which assets are gonna be the most economic and, and it will really establish the regions uh, where, where physical assets would be located. In South Dakota, we've got wind assets that we think are excellent candidates uh, for the production of green hydrogen. We just have to ensure that the treasury rules come out right. And specifically, what will happen to the power that's generated from this project? So the electric power that we generate as a uh, XL Energy is uh, is part of the regional MISO system, right? Uh, that covers a large part of the upper Midwest. And what should we expect to happen next? Sure. Well, uh, what, what we'll enter into first are negotiations with DOE that will really lay out uh, the milestones and how the monies will be released over time. That's expected to take three to six months. And then we'll enter into then we'll enter into a detailed planning and design phase, which will take uh, a year and a half to two years. That'll be followed by uh, permitting uh, and other development work with construction, really beginning in the latter part of the decade, rolling into the 2030s. I'd just like to say we're we're very excited about this opportunity. This is really a transformational process that we're entering into for the region, and it's really going to be a part of our carbon-free future and how we get there. You're listening to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm Lori Walsh. What does it mean to be a Midwesterner? It's a question the rest of America isn't always interested in, but here at home, insight into Midwestern identity can be key to not only understanding who we are, but leveraging that influence nationwide in politics, in science, in the arts, in innovation. Emerson College Polling and the Middle West Review have released the largest ever study on Midwestern boundaries and identity. Some of the results affirm what you might already know about the strength of who we are. Others might just surprise you. John Lauk is editor of Middle West Review, and he's author of the book, The Good Country, A History of the American Midwest. And John Lauk joins me now on the phone. Hey, John, welcome back to In the Moment. Hi, Laurie. Hope you are well. It's always a pleasure to talk to the voice of South Dakota. <laughs> I have no doubts that I am a Midwesterner, but not everybody calls themselves that. Let's talk about the methodology of this poll and what you think the significance uh, of it is. Well, as you know, we've talked uh, in the past about the fact that our knowledge of Midwestern history in comparison to other regions like the West and the South is uh, much, much lower. It's, uh, it's not a robust field of study uh, like other places uh, have. And so we've been trying to revive study of the region. And one of the first questions that always comes up is, well, what is the region? What are the boundaries? What's in and what is out? And this often uh, leads people to get sidetracked, and you never get back to the <laughs> basics of the history of the region. So we've been having this discussion at Middle West Review for a number of years about 
well, what can we do to give some finality to this question or at least get the discussion going based on some real data and not just people's gut instincts or their feelings? And so we worked with Emerson College Polling, which has been doing uh, more and more polling nationally, but also in South Dakota. And we set up a huge survey, um, almost 12,000 people. And we surveyed people in the traditional 12 states of the Midwest, so Ohio out to the Dakotas, Nebraska, and Kansas. But we also added another tier of states beyond that so we could get a better sense of where the Midwest ends or where people stop thinking about um, being in the Midwest. So the results, I think, uh, in some cases are pretty obvious. Uh, 97% of people in Minnesota and Iowa think they are Midwesterners or living in the Midwest. Um, But to give a little bit of regional contrast to this, only about 8% of people in Tennessee call themselves Midwesterners, which that that makes perfect sense. In fact, yeah. 8% seems slightly high to me. I, I don't know why that number of people would say that in Tennessee, but you have some transplants and people sure. move in and out. And so it's not, it's not shocking. Also, uh, West Virginia uh, drops down to 13% uh, Midwesterners while Indiana uh, is at 94% or something. So this data makes a lot of sense. And um, remember that this is self-identification. This is asking people if they consider themselves to be Midwesterners. This is not us projecting our feelings onto some other state. It's not us Uh, trying to say, well, this is what Ohio really is. We're asking people in Ohio, how do they self-identify? So that's why the data is very valuable. So when we head west a little bit, what sort of changes do we start seeing when you get to that Colorado, Montana, and even out to Idaho? Well, since this is a uh, mostly South Dakota audience, um, many of your listeners will know that when you drive west on I-90, People get to the Missouri River and they think, oh, I'm passing the 100th Meridian. I'm getting out into uh, the Plains West or the Great Plains or just the American West uh, because there are obvious uh, divisions between East River and West River, South Dakota. West River's more ranchy and it has a different topography and it's drier and there's more Indian reservations and mountains, et cetera. Uh, it starts to feel Western. And so I think a lot of writers and intellectuals have uh, drawn this line at the 100th meridian. Um, But what this survey indicates is that the actual people there continue to identify as Midwesterners much farther to the West than I think a lot of people would have thought going into this. And it kind of makes sense because how many people do you know who declare themselves Plainsmen? I mean, no one does that. People do call themselves Midwesterners, however. Um, and then when you get far enough out, when you're on the eastern slope of the Rockies and stuff, people are going to see that they're Westerners and identify with Colorado and the Rockies, et cetera. But that liminal space there in between, which a lot of 
smart people call the Great Plains, the people living there don't necessarily identify as Plains people as much as we might have thought. And the boundary lines of the Midwest stretch a little farther west uh, than I imagined and I think other people imagined. So, John, I want to dive deeper into this idea of asking people, where do you live? Do you live in the Midwest? And then also asking, are you a Midwesterner? And you mentioned, you know, there can be some transplants one way or the other that would impact that data somewhat. But largely, um, there's something more insightful there, I think. Tell me what, why you separated those two questions to say when it comes to just not geography, but identity. Are you a Midwesterner? What's the power of that question? Well, let's take Iowa, for example, which everyone agrees is clearly in the Midwest. It's at the center of this map of the Midwest, and it has the highest percentage of people who identify or say they are in the Midwest at 97%. Now, we ask two questions. Are you in the Midwest uh, to people living in Iowa? And 70% or 97% said yes. Uh, I am living in the Midwest. We also asked, are you a Midwesterner? And only 90% of people said yes. So I think that is explained by people moving to Des Moines to work in jobs, maybe from Florida or wherever. And so they don't consider themselves Midwesterners. They maybe consider themselves something else, but they still see that they are physically in the Midwest at that moment. So that's that's the key distinction in those questions. Yeah. All right. So what? Oh, there's a lot of data here, and we'll put some links up to this study on our website at sdpb.org slash news, or you can just Google Middle West Review, find their Twitter page, and find those links right away um, before we've done our posting for the day. But, John, what are all you looking forward to pulling out of that data that you think will be more insightful? Are there big questions that you have that you're hoping to learn more about? Well, I'm glad you said that because uh, we consider this open source data. I mean, we're obviously a journal based at a public university, the University of South Dakota, and we thank them for all their support. Uh, But the data is open source, so anybody can go in and get the spreadsheets and crunch the numbers and find out lots of different things. Mm -hmm. And there are experts in GIS mapping that know how to use this data and We didn't just ask people, are you in the Midwest? We asked them a lot of questions like, how old are you? And are you a Democrat? Or who are you voting for? Or what is your gender? That sort of thing. So people can run these uh, results across different levels of identity and analysis. And, um, you know, we just got the data back uh, about 36 hours ago. So we're looking forward to seeing what people come up with. We have put out a few uh, maps of our own if you go to the Middle West Review Twitter page, but there's this is just the tip of the iceberg. Yeah, we'll be talking about this for a long time to come. In your book, The Good Country, which you and I have discussed um, uh, probably more at length than we will have time with today, you talk about how the impact of I want to circle back to what you said at the beginning of our conversation. It's not just about what we feel or what kind of mood we're in or uh, the subjective ways that we measure Midwesternness. This is looking at the data. Are you seeing that book has really launched and been pretty successful? Are you seeing a deeper conversation about how we 
consider this area that we call the Midwest, especially from uh, a political influence standpoint? Well, I think we kind of reached a nadir in terms of Midwestern studies maybe 15, 20 years ago, and there's a lot of explanations for that and a lot of details about why uh, things fell apart. But I think you're right. We are in the midst of a renaissance of sorts, a revival of interest in the region. Uh, there's been a number of important works and books come out and conferences and plenary sessions at at bigger conferences talking about the Midwest. So, And I think this survey is going to be a big part of that story. Um, I think because the survey results were so strong in the sense that it's a huge number of people who identify as Midwestern. I think there's a general sense among people maybe on the coast that the Midwest really isn't a region. It's very amorphous. No one really knows what it is. People don't strongly connect to that place. Well, this this study belies all of that and makes very clear that people understand who they are and where they're rooted. When you have 97% of people in Iowa saying they're Midwestern, that's pretty amazing because 97% of people don't agree on anything in this country. <laughs> I mean, there's a lot of division and polarization. So to get that high of a number... Uh, that's clearly a sign that this connection to place is very powerful and has not diminished. I mean, I think we sometimes believe that because of the Internet and our iPhones and all these communications revolutions that we've lost our connection to a particular piece of ground. And this survey cuts against that idea. Yeah. All right. One last question. Did I get to get to you before Terry Gross or... Did you already talk with her this morning? It looks like Terry Gross is trying to buzz in right now. <laughs> right, I'll let go you go. John Luck, thank you so much. You can uh, go to the Middle West Review Twitter page, but we'll also put links up on our website about this new, um, it's the largest ever survey on Midwestern boundaries and identity. My guest has been the author of The Good Country, John Luck. We'll see you next time. Thank you, Lori. You're listening to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm Lori Walsh. Well, just before the break, John Locke was talking with us about what it means to be a Midwesterner, according to a new poll. And uh, we're going to keep that conversation going and expand on it and take it uh, wherever it leads us <laughs> with our Dakota Political Junkies conversation today. Mike Card and John Hunter are both in the studio. Uh, Dr. Card is a political scientist and professor emeritus at the University of South Dakota in Vermilion. And John Hunter is publisher emeritus of the Madison Daily Leader. He was inducted into the South Dakota Newspaper Hall of Fame in 2022. Dr. Card, welcome. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. John Hunter, welcome. Thanks for being here. Thanks for the invitation. Laura. All right. Are you Midwesterner, John? Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> and you live in the Midwest, both those Both things. of them. No, there's, a, there's no yeah. gap between my perception and reality. What do you make of uh, the study? Because I think what John Locke was trying to get at, too, is that it's there's always some kind of clickbait online with people saying, where does the Midwest begin or end? But this is uh, the largest scientific data or polling. Help me with my language. But... Um, launch that we've seen where people can really look at how, how they identify themselves. Does this matter? What do you think it adds to the conversation? Well, the, uh, 
you know, I believe the the term Midwesterner is really a cultural thing. It's not even a even a um, geographic thing. I think there's people in Los Angeles who consider themselves Midwesterners because they're transplants, or because they have a. I think mostly because mostly because they're transplants. Yeah. But yes, there is a point of view element in there. There really is, and some people might even say, "I've never lived in the Midwest, but I feel like a Midwesterner." So I think very much it's a cultural thing, rather, or an attitude, or and I, and there's I think it's a very positive one when people say that they say uh, kind of hardworking, virtuous, ethical, whatever those kinds of things are. I think it's a very positive term. I don't picture it at all as backward or flyover or any of that. Yeah, Mike, what do you think about the poll? Well, I, I it, it had some interesting aspects because there were lots of studies that that uh, Emerson College has done based off of that, but certainly looking at, do you feel like a Midwesterner? And I think John captured that greatly. I certainly experienced that my five years in living in Ohio, that people who were from Cincinnati, Cleveland, and uh, Columbus, if they were from there, they viewed themselves not so much as Midwesterners. Cincinnati viewed themselves as Southerners. Cleveland views themselves as Easterners. But those who were transplanted from rural areas who'd moved into Columbus for economic opportunity, they were clearly Midwesterners. I mean, you couldn't tell the difference between... They didn't notice that I was from South Dakota. Okay. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. I've not you spent in. any time in, in the great state of Ohio, so I don't have any relevant experience to add to whether Ohio is in the Midwest. Well, but I, clearly it is. Yeah, I noticed the same thing when I lived in California, and I think John and I were conversing before we came in. Uh, the basic same thing holds is, well, how do we deal with transplants? And I think one of the things we may want to think about is, is with the relatively small sample size, even though it was done really well from their description, meets contemporary polling standards, what do we do with the immigrants to South Dakota? What do we do as... As John noted, the Somalians, what do we do with the Native Americans? Do they view themselves? Where are our tribal identities, I think, is, is becoming... So you should be able to dive in, depending on the questions that they asked, you should be able to dive into that open source research and find out if somebody who has come from Guatemala self-identified as a Midwesterner. Right. Should be able to, Should, again, I haven't, the, looked, at I haven't looked at what questions and, they asked. And the yeah. sample size that if you mm -hmm. get a, a large enough percentage that you can generalize right. from it. And okay. that, that's one of the challenges. But again, it was done pretty well for a, for a large uh, sample survey over several states in the Midwest and, and those bordering the Midwest. I'm, one, I'm curious to dive into the data about age and generational because um, I think we've talked about mm -hmm. that before in another context, which is slipping my mind right now. But just like people of different generations identifying in, d in different ways, where do the, are those distinctions fading is the importance of that fading. Well, I, th I think we're in a shift, frankly, because I think there are a lot of people who uh, associated themselves as Norwegians or Germans or, or Scandinavians or wherever they, you know, I mean, for the first century, let's say, half century maybe since South Dakota was founded, People identified themselves as Irish or wherever they, their parents or their grandparents came from. And now, I don't think that's quite as much now. I mean, there are Sons of Norway chapters in South Dakota that are still active that hold on to that. But I think now maybe, because we've been here long enough, I think Midwestern is the new, the tide to our ancestors. Maybe third or fourth generation farm families now think, I'm really from the Midwest and that's my heritage rather than it's from... 
Oslo or Bergen or someplace. Yeah. Likewise, it'll be interesting to see tribal affiliation and self-identity. If you are Lakota, do you also say, yep, I'm a Midwesterner? Or do you not say yeah. that? Do you say that mo less, are you less likely to say that than somebody with German ancestry? I'm just curious. I don't know. Right. Yeah. And, uh, and again, new immigrants to, to Sioux Falls or to South Dakota, if they're coming here for work or, and kind of permanently, you know, working in agriculture or, or whatever field, uh, will they uh, identify themselves as where they came from or where they are now? And that, I think it's, that's an age-old challenge. I mean, I think it takes time to assimilate. So, Mike, with uh, Middle West Review being um, you know, in partnership with the University of South Dakota, talk more broadly about just the study of us, the study of Midwestern studies, Midwestern history, understanding Midwestern political science. Um, in your experience as a, a professor over the decades, did you find that students were coming in interested in pursuing those kinds of field, that kind of study? Not so much Midwestern, but many were interested in, even in South Dakota's own history. And the, uh, it's been in the educational standards for quite some time that fourth, eighth, and 11th grade at least, there were uh, standards that required exposure to South Dakota history, not much on the government, but uh, I, I, you know, I never taught history, so I can't. Right, yeah. I, I Just can't with your speak. colleagues and, and student yeah. interest, yeah. You know, certainly uh, there, there's interest in South Dakota's historical background that, that exists everywhere. But we find, again, many of the students, probably a third of the students at USD are from Nebraska or Iowa. And, and I think those numbers are increasing as we're finding South Dakota's population of younger students uh, declining. The high school graduates are declining, so the Board of Regents has expanded the in-state tuition to neighboring states and beyond. Uh, and, and it's interesting to see some of the different political cultures arise. You know, especially if they're from Lincoln or Omaha or Des Moines, uh, they're much more tolerant of what we would say is deviant behavior than those of us that grew up in towns of 400 people. What do you mean, deviant behavior as in... Well, there are, I think there are Dying your hair pink? Or well, you mean like... I mean, that's one. I think another one... <laughs> not that I think that's deviant, <laughs> not, to be no. clear, but what, well, what do but you mean? Th there are strong norms about what acceptable forms of behavior are. Is you don't stand out, you don't okay. speak hi highly of yourself, you don't criticize people in public... You know, I, I think that, that many of those norms are fading largely because, or they're either fading or becoming stronger based on whether you're tolerant of, of, of those people that might be displaying behavior hmm. that you don't think belongs here. Interesting. I always notice when I travel to New York to see my daughter that I put my smile back on the closer I get. <laughs> to the <laughs> Minneapolis airport. <laughs> like when you're in New York, nobody cares if you're smiling. <laughs> All right. Like, in fact, I get asked every time I'm in New York, I get asked for directions. I cannot possibly look like I know where anything <laughs> is. But I'm, you know, I got that yep. Midwestern smile. I have that openness. And then when I get closer and closer, you know, flying west, I'm like, you got to smile now. You're like, <laughs> do you do you strike up conversations with people on the subway? Yeah, that's <laughs> that's my that's my question. I've been instructed not to. Okay, yes. my, we'll, my Bostonian we'll wife would yeah. elbow me if I spoke to someone on the. I L still do. <laughs> I I also had to learn. This is my number one flaw. Like I'll stop in the middle of the sidewalk, yeah. and talk. 
yeah. to whoever I'm with or look at my phone or try to figure out which direction. And my daughter's like, you really need to get out of the way. <laughs> Step aside. <laughs> Step aside. It's a thoroughfare. So, and I'm like, hey, I'm a Midwesterner. Like, this is, this is what we do. Um, I want to weave in this other article that uh, Mikey brought our attention to, which is from The New Yorker, published on October 16th, just on Monday, Beyond the Myth of Rural America, a biting look at what rural-urban divide looks like right now and how we talk about it. Tell me a little bit about, um, other than the extended metaphor of American Gothic, the painting, there's, yeah, there's a, lot of t- a, lot there's of, a whole lot of that in there. Yes, but there is. But, <laughs> what's at the heart of this piece, in well, your mind? I think what's at the heart of the piece is, is that, to a large extent, we favor the Midwest, that it generally people would view the Midwest as having good people, that we, we view ourselves as being low government, low taxes, low services, great amounts of self uh Reliance. Say, thank you. That's the word I was trying <laughs> yeah. to. I could tell. Yeah. <laughs> See, I'm reliant on you for this. <laughs> and, and I think what uh, the author was trying to do is to say, that's not so true. That, you know, and, and it was where I was coming from, from the normative behavior and expectations of how others are supposed to behave. And I think that's one thing that separates us from the rest of the world. If you get into a city, you have to be tolerant of behavior that doesn't fit your personal norms. There are just so many people. Uh, on another aspect, we've and, and what the author brought up is, well, we like to believe in low government. Well, we really don't. Uh, we have we, we love the federal government money, <laughs> and, you know, even to the point where over the past couple of years, uh, we've decided not to put limits, we, overall expenditure limits in our budget on how much can be spent, but not where that money comes from or what it can be used for. As long as it's federal money, that's the authority that's being granted. But what we've also seen is is that the business and industry, in order to get profits, our small town uh, packing plants have largely closed. There are fewer uh, fewer of them, and even the the individual meat market, there are fewer of those. You know, IBP found a market, so we don't see very many butcher shops in our groceries anymore. We see boxed beef. We see Tyson chicken, and not that these are bad, but in order to make their profit margins, they had to bring in workers from other countries who were willing to do the work for lower wages. That displaced a large number of Midwestern men and women who are now angry. Mm. And I think that's the other part of this is is the anger toward the both uh, – globalization of the economy and anger toward those immigrants, which I think, you know, the the author mentioned the uh, uh, rich men north of Richmond, which I think was largely misplaced anger, but some of it was rightly placed. It's the, the corporate business world from larger places has been focused on profits, and that meant that they're cutting local business out and having to bring people in who will do the work that they want for the wages that they can afford to pay and largely dismissed and fight against unionized labor. And that's certainly still a fight that's that's we see going on with the, uh, the auto industry in terms yeah. of 
should people collectively organize for higher wages? Yeah. So this is Daniel Imrawar. I don't know if I'm saying his name right. It's called Beyond the Myth of Rural America. It came out in the New Yorker magazine on Monday. I'll just quote from him. Although we tend to equate rural with farm, and he's actually, uh, to be fair, he's actually quoting a book by Stephen Kahn here. Um, Small general farms disappeared more than half a century ago at least. Agriculture has become a capital-intensive, high-tech pursuit, belying the left-behind story of rural life. Fields resemble factories where automation reigns, and more than two-thirds of the hired workforce is foreign-born. So this is a book that he's talking about, written by Stephen Kahn, the author. John, as you look at the, the myth of rural America and this conversation, what comes to mind? What rises to the top for you? I think that last <laughs> quote that you just had is an exaggeration. I don't see uh, <coughs> rural uh, farms in South Dakota as being some big corporate factory that are highly automated. There are still people who get their hands dirty <laughs> in South Dakota farms. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's, and I do, I've, I've always appreciated diversified farms in South Dakota that have some chickens here and some cattle here and some, you know, crops and so forth. And so I think that's, I think it's an, a big exaggeration. Um, but, uh, you know, I, they have changed. Certainly, we don't have four families on a section anymore, right. and there are fewer. There's been a disemployment in agriculture in South Dakota. There just takes fewer people to do produce more, and they, they have moved into towns like Madison and Sioux Falls and others and sought employment in other industries. This is not something I can back up, but nothing in this piece would indicate to me that anyone's been here. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> I mean, he hasn't said that he has or hasn't, but when I read it, I do, I get that feeling that you get when you read that someone has written something about you and not necessarily on your behalf, if that it makes sense. It feels a little like the New Yorker. It I mean, that's sometimes that's, they do that. It does feel like they are making observations about us from afar. This piece we, does. We have become a them. We're a In them this piece, to them. we have become a them yeah. to them. Yeah. Just as we consider them a them to us. <laughs> that, you know, who would want to live in a city? I don't, who would love, I don't live? love all the theming thing, so I don't like to be themed. No, and, and we should be. Othering, I should yeah. say. A better word uh, would be like, yeah, I don't yeah. necessarily think of New Yorkers as other. No, but you have a daughter who and lives they, there. They and don't think of me as other there. because they ask me for directions yes. <laughs> fairly reliably. <laughs> that is true. I have a personal connection yeah. to the city. And so, I, I yeah. think those of us who have lived in cities are probably less likely to view them as others, yeah. the people that live there. But but that's, a, again, another gross generalization about treating others. Yeah. And what I think everybody agrees with is, is we would like to be known by the quality of our character rather than the color of our skin or where we're from. Yeah. Um, I want to wrap up with an uh, editorial that John Hunter <coughs> wrote in the Madison Daily Leader about the location of a new prison in South Dakota because if anybody gets pushed into a, you know, us and them category, uh, incarcerated people are often a big, quiet them that you don't want in your backyard. And you uh, wrote a, a thoughtful piece about a location of a new prison, and you think that they're on the right track with this uh, just south of Sioux Falls idea. Well, there's a, there's a paradox, at least, that, that people don't want prisons in their backyard, and I understand that, at least from a safety expectation, uh, even though it may not face reality. <clears throat> but also, there, you know, there are 400 people who work at the South Dakota Penitentiary here, and they have to come from someone. So you can't put it in a 
extremely remote area because you don't have any people to help. So you need to be kind of rural, kind of urban, and I think southern Sioux, south of Sioux Falls does fit that. Um, and I think there's a real opportunity, and I, I wrote about this too, that you can design a new prison with a much better expectation of success than than the 120-year-old prison that we have Define here. Define success. Success to me is reduced recidivism, uh, re improved rehabilitation, improved educational opportunities, mental health counseling, all the things that, that will help people who have, at least by our laws, have gone astray. I mean, that's, I'm not saying that's my laws, that's our collective laws, that, you can, that they can return to uh, society and be great citizens again. I mean, I, I think there's, to me, that's success. Recidivism, returning to communities and committing new crimes is, is not success. That's the failure to me. Okay. And safety for those employees. Very because much. Because this is a really tough job, and we've heard a lot about uh, mandatory overtime, and they've just had an exodus of staff Absolutely. members Absolutely. Um, not only for staff, yeah. but neighbors and, and, and uh, prisoners themselves, yeah. right? Uh, you, shouldn't, you shouldn't be subject to, to an unsafe environment, even if you've committed crimes. Yeah. Mike, what, what are your thoughts about the new prison and, and location that you want to throw in here? Well, I, I guess the first one is is I'm more excited for the Rapid City prison because, you know, to reduce recidivism, almost every, well, almost everyone who's incarcerated will eventually leave. Will they have skills and abilities to reenter society in a productive manner? And there are many things that contribute to that, one of which is is not truly caging people up because they will act like people in a cage. If we can get family to visit them and have safe environments to visit, the more likely they are to look at the life where they're currently leading while incarcerated and the life outside and decide, I want to be outside and make choices consonant with that. So the more likely people are to be able to visit people while their relatives and friends are incarcerated, they're doing their time, but they're going to come out. So the more likely they are to be visited and to be reintroduced into society on a regular basis, that's a good thing. Uh, I think in terms of Colorado has one of their maximum security prisons in Sterling, which is three hours outside of Denver. <laughs> and they're not going to get very many visits. The, right. the one concern I have about the 15 miles south of Sioux Falls is uh, for relatively low-income people, can they get there to visit their their friend or relative to, to produce that very benefit? We've decided as a legislature and as a state that we're going to hold people to longer sentences that serve their full sentence. You know, the, 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 the warden has indicated that she wants to be able to provide the services that will help people reenter society in a productive and safe manner. John, wrap us up. I think two big elements of successful prisons are one, prison design, that's the architecture and how you set that up, and programming, and that's the rehabilitation element. And I'm hoping that, that both those elements will be in the new facility. Yeah. All right. We'll leave it there for now. John Hunter and Mike Card, thank you so much for being here with us. Always great to see you. Thank you, Lori. Thanks for having us. You're listening to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm Lori Walsh. The cultural relevance of the buffalo is the subject of SDPB's newest documentary series, 
In a partnership with Mapialuta, SDPB explores the return of the buffalo to the landscape and to communities as a testament to tribal treaty rights and sovereignty. SDPB's Richard Tubles is with me now from our studio in the Black Hills with the preview. Hey, Richard, welcome back. Hey, Lori, been a while. It has been a while, except we were <laughs> just together in person out in Deadwood at the Festival of Books, and it was standing room only for the panel discussion with you and Joseph Marshall and Dan O'Brien and um, our author, Michelle Nighthouse. Nighthouse, mm. yep. Um, so there's a great interest in not only Ken Burns's American Buffalo, but in Tatanka. You ready for yeah, the, the, the spotlight? <laughs> <laughs> I think you just summed it up right now. Uh, yeah. No, uh, I really, um, I'm really glad that there's a lot of interest that's involved with not only the, the the story of the American buffalo from Ken Burns' perspective, but being able to bring something like the Tatanka Way of Life documentary to our viewers here in South Dakota, I think is uh, what kind of puts that very... Uh, it just gives them an idea of what's happening here, yeah. but from a different perspective because, you know, there's more than 80-plus tribes that are in the United States. And, you know, i just really glad that I could bring, the, bring that story from our perspective to the people that live here and our yeah. listeners. Me too. Um, tell me about the partnership with Mapia Luta. Help people understand how this all kind of came together. It's been ongoing relationship for quite some time. Yeah, you know, we've uh we have that boutique studio down there that, you know, for years I've been utilizing it to come on in the moment to talk mm -hmm. with you with whatever coverage that I've had and we've had a great relationship with them and they invited us to document one of their buffalo harvests that they do every year. And we did that and it was so powerful that we're just like, you know, we really have to do something with this and it just kind of spearheaded the whole idea of, you know, let's do a companion piece to the documentary series that Ken Burns is doing. And, you know, they kind of gave me, uh, think, thinking my leadership here at SDPB, they gave me the kind of the reins to, to be able to tell the story that I wanted to tell that meant a lot to me. And that partnership with Red Cloud was able to highlight um, what they're doing to bring back the language and the culture. So I was able to have them, <coughs> excuse me, have them uh, tell the white buffalo calf woman's story in Lakota and English. And that I think <laughs> was really the pinnacle of what I wanted to do. And it was kind of brought up, yeah, let's do a documentary. I was like, well, we have to include this. And yeah. it just worked out way better with those young ladies there speaking it in Lakota. It's just it so powerful to hear. I, I get chills just thinking about it. What was it like to work on that? It it was, yeah, you know, it, it's really hair-raising, you know, and yeah. I'm very envious that at my age, being Ogallala Lakota, because, you know, I've said this before in different panels, but being a part of that generation that wasn't taught the language or, to a certain extent, a lot of those uh, very traditional cultural teachings it was it it I envied them for being able to speak the language and understand it, and probably even made fun of me in Lakota. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think that's <laughs> unlikely. <laughs> yeah. oh, ha however, I do want to dive deeper into that because, I mean, you're a young man, 
Richard. <laughs> mm-hmm. And and this is, uh, it's not, it's difficult to be in your generation coming in that in-between space between when language was, uh, you know, tried to be eradicated. Mm-hmm. I'm losing the language here to even how, how to describe that. But yet it's still there. That, I mean, this is still vibrant and, and possible. Do you have a sense of the direction and the the groundswell of empowerment and language usage that's really making a difference in in people's lives right now? How would you it it, it can't be easy, but how would you characterize it? Well, like you said, you know, it it I don't think it was ever easy to do something on that. It it took a lot of people in a variety of different organizations or entities that were you know, I think a lot of it was grassroots, uh, you know, within, especially at uh, Mapialuta, to kind of take their their reins on it and decide that this is something that they want to do. Mm-hmm. And you know, a lot of their uh, classes are all in Lakota, so there's you know, there's classes <laughs> where they're speaking in Lakota all day, and then they get home. You know, that's when they could possibly talk to their grandparents in Lakota, and you know, kind of get that. Get, get get that connection that some of us weren't wa- weren't able to have if we were able to speak to our elders in Lakota, you know. So I think that in itself is a a very powerful thing. Yeah, um, we've talked a little bit about language, about the buffalo and the harvest. Tell me about Tatanka, a way of life, and what um, audience members who tune into the the first part of the series are going to experience that you hope they'll see. Well, you know, when it when it came to the documentary itself, you know, the there's going to be some the some of the highlighting of some of the atrocities and failed policy that was um, put against Native Americans, and that that kind of has to be told. But I didn't want to necessarily focus on that in regards to you know. And for lack of a better word, I just wanted it to tell a story of more of a modern contemporary contemporary aspect of what, you know, these tribes are doing to bring back the buffalo. And like I said earlier, when we were trying to narrow it down, I was like, you know, there's so many things going on with revitalization, with the language, with the culture, that I just wanted to stick with, you know, the story of the buffalo, how that was you know, a very sad aspect when they were almost annihilated. But the great part is that it's, it, it's they're coming back. And mm-hmm. it it's very powerful to see that, you know, there's just such a great, strong connection with the animal that, you know, we've historically provided food for hundreds of hundreds of years. So it's, yeah, I could talk all day, but you know, it's that's just kind of the gist of what to expect out of this yeah. is just for the bison and the buffalo by you know a Native American storyteller. And uh, what's amazing about it is we were able to get illustrations from a renowned Native American artist, Marty Tubal Senior. He's my <laughs> uncle, but oh, did you? he provided <laughs> amazing. Should, the amazing should be Pulitzer artwork. Prize winning. Marty, <laughs> 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 amazing <laughs> artwork, 
and <laughs> and it's very organic in that sense because we even have original music by the Wake Singers. You remember them, yeah, Maureen? Absolutely, absolutely. Okay, well, we're gonna let people know before we run up on time that uh, Tatanka: A Way of Life premieres October nineteenth, seven p.m. Central. 6 p.m. Mountain on SDBB TV. This is not by any means the last conversation we're going to have about this or the last time you'll hear Richard's voice because this work is <laughs> uh, is just such a privilege to amplify it and turn the microphone over to you. So we'll see you next time, Richard. Thank you for stopping by yeah, today. Thanks, Lert. That is our show for today. We hope that it served you. On tomorrow's In the Moment, South Dakota's representative in the U.S. House, Dusty Johnson, is with us. We'll get an update on the deal-making, the votes, and the future of leadership in America. Plus, we have a Holocaust historian for a look at the history of the War Refugee Board. It's all coming up on tomorrow's In the Moment from all of us at South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm Lori Walsh. Thank you for listening. Thank you.